It's so good to see you tonight. As always, thank you for making time in the middle of your week to participate in our midweek Bible study. We love you. I love you. I appreciate you so very much. Uh, we've been uh, going through this series on sexuality. We had a, a break last week. I know that you probably enjoyed the break. Uh, for one, you probably needed a break with the, the topic that we've had, and also because Cole Ford did a great job uh, for us last week, so I really appreciate him filling in for us while I was while I was away, and now I'm excited to pick back up where we left off. I just kind of want to review a little bit. We've been talking about sexuality, the truth about sexuality in a world of competing ideas. Um, so we're, we're, we're kind of trying to do two things. One, look at the truth, and also, on the, on the other hand, look at some of the competing ideas, and not just how people in, quote-unquote, the world, or them, or those people out there have other ideas about sexuality, really trying to be self-examining, introspective, and look at ourselves and say, how have competing ideas about sexuality, how have those influenced and shaped me? How have they influenced and shaped you? We have to be incredibly humble when we approach this topic. Not just going in, pointing fingers at other people, saying, you've broken the rules, uh, but really looking and examining ourselves and asking, how have these other ideas that are so prevalent in the world, how have they shaped my own thinking about sexuality? So we've, we've really tried to lay a, a bedrock, a foundation under this discussion uh, before we even really get into the deeper things. So we said things like this. First, in the first lesson, only God's love can teach us how to truly love and be loved. We are all, we are all looking to love others and to be loved by others. Everyone is looking to love and be loved. And that's true, isn't it? I think, I don't know anybody that doesn't care anything about being loved or loving others. Now, how we define love and what that looks like and where we think the, the boundaries of love are or the, the proper ways to express love or what it looks like to be loving in any context all of those things differ based on, on who we think we are, who we think God is, what we think life is all about. And so that's why we said in the second week that the Christian view of sexuality is not simply a set of rules. This, this class is not simply about a set of rules to say, do this and don't do that. It's a unique understanding of what the human body is, what the body is for, how the body is defiled by sin, how the body is redeemed by God's love, how the body becomes a temple for God's spirit, how the body is to be used in God's service, and how the body will be raised to live forever. If we're going to understand Christian sexuality, if we're going to understand biblical sexuality, then we have to understand that the human body is incredibly important to the biblical story. That God is not just interested in, quote-unquote, your spirit or your mind. God is interested in your whole self, in human beings, your whole being. And we defile our being by sin, but God cleanses our being, and God is redeeming our being, our body, and we use our body in God's service. And on the day of resurrection, 
God will redeem our body from the grave. He is literally going to raise dead bodies back to life and transform them to live forever. So what you do with the body really, truly matters. It really, truly matters. Because again, we, we live in a world of competing ideas, even within, even within the Christian realm. Um, so we said the, the two weeks ago that culture offers you a starring role in a story that will ultimately be about you, your tragically unfulfilled desires. In other words, culture offers you a, a story that is all about you, right? And we have been shaped to, to sort of think of ourselves that way, so many of us, we tend to think that, that we are living out a story that is about us, that we are the starring character in a movie or a book or a novel or a story that is all about us, and everyone else are just supporting characters. The gospel teaches us to decentralize ourselves so that the story is no longer about us, Christ offers you a supporting role in a story about how he will successfully bring justice and glory and fulfillment to all of God's people. If the story is about you, and the story is about you chasing what you want, if the story is you fulfilling your desires, pursuing your hopes and dreams, making yourself happy, guarantee it will end tragically. It will end tragically. If you are the main character, it will be a tragedy. But if Jesus is the main character, it will be a success story. It will be a victory. That's really the only way because otherwise your story ends in death, right? If the story is about you and you make your story about you, then it ends in death. That's, that's, the, only, that's the only possibility. But if you decentralize yourself, and you orient your life around Jesus, and you become a supporting character in a story that's all about him, then, then the story goes on forever. Then you live forever. Then you are a supporting character in the story of Jesus forever. And the story doesn't end. It goes on in eternal life. It's a story about how Jesus brings glory and justice and fulfillment to you and to all of his people. But again, the only way to be part of that story is to die to self, to die to self. And again, we live in a world, and, and it's not just the world, it's all of us that have been shaped by a mentality that, that has centralized self, that has really deified self. Know yourself, be true to yourself, you do you, you live your truth. And so we live in a world that's all about fulfilling self and being your true self. And Jesus says, actually, the only way to really be fulfilled and to be happy forever is to die to yourself. It's to take up your cross and follow him into death and out the other side into victory and life and justice forever and ever. But that's not to say that this life of self-denial or this life of dying to self, this life of taking up our cross is wholly miserable. It's still the abundant life, isn't it? It's still the abundant life. And even as we talk about sexuality, we talk about sex itself, we have to acknowledge that sex is good. 
I've been waiting a long time to say that from the pulpit, but that's true. <laughs> sex is good. So let's talk about, let me give you four reasons why sex is good. Sex is good. Number one, sex is good because it was created and commissioned by God. I mean, just that it's created by God means that it's good, but it's also commissioned by God. One of the very first things that God tells to his people is be fruitful and multiply, right? I mean, let's be honest. He's telling them to have sex, right? He's telling them to to procreate. So sex is good because it's created by God. Everything that God created is good. It's good. When he saw everything that he made, including the male-female relationship, the marriage between man and woman, he said it's very good. And that includes gender and sexuality. It includes the act of married sex. It is good because God created it and he commissioned it. He told them, he commissioned them, he commanded them to engage in sex. It is good because God created it and God commissioned it. Number two, God operates within the sexual union to bring about new human life. Ah. We live in a demystified world, don't we? We live in a demystified world where we don't just stop and be like, what? Are you kidding me? How amazing is that? I remember somebody, I don't remember, I don't remember the context of this, but I remember somebody comparing procreation to like if you had a bucket of oil and you put nuts and bolts in it and you waited a few months and out popped a car, right? Uh, would be amazing. But, but that's what we're talking about. How does, how does that work? You're telling me human life came into existence because God, okay, I got it, God shaped dirt from the ground. He formed a mud man and he breathed into him life. Okay, yeah, that makes about as much sense as anything because life is mysterious and wonderful and it has to come from God. But then you're telling me that from that point on, from the point on that men and women were created, from that point on, God participated and cooperated and operated within the sexual union of husband and wife to bring every new human being into existence. That's amazing. That's amazing. So yes, sex is created by God. Yes, it's commissioned by God. But God operates within that sexual union to bring about new human life. And again, because of all kinds of things, because of contraception, because of abortion, because again, we live in a very uh, science-heavy world, we've sort of become demystified where we haven't just stopped and been amazed by it all. That this act of a husband and wife coming together, that that can produce another human into the world, that is simply amazing. Praise God for what an amazing, wonderful thing that is. Number three, sex allows a husband and wife to be so physically close that they become one flesh. They become one unit. Sex allows a husband and wife to share an intimacy, a closeness, a closeness on every conceivable level that is, is unique in that way. And then number four, sex allows a husband and wife to express love in a way that brings joy and pleasure to the other. 
That's what it should do. We'll talk more about that in a couple weeks when we talk specifically about marriage. But sex allows a husband and wife to express love in a way that brings joy and pleasure to the other. Sex is good. God designed it to be good. God created it. God commissioned it. God operates within it to bring new life into the world. It brings two two people that are different, a man and a woman, two opposites in a way, two complementary opposites, brings them together so that they are one flesh. And it allows one to express love to the other in a way that brings the other joy and pleasure. Sex is a good thing. In fact, in fact, the Song of Songs is an entire book of the Bible celebrating sexual love within marriage. And that's amazing, isn't it? We have a, a whole book of the Bible. I mean, you know, when I found that out, I was a little shocked, to be honest, you know? I, I was a little shocked and when I was, you know, 12, 11, 12 years old, and I was reading through the Bible, and I was like, whoa, can't believe that's in there. In fact, the rabbis wouldn't even allow young children to read the, the Song of Songs until they were an adult, because it is an adult type of a book. It's an entire book celebrating sexual love within marriage. That, that should tell us something. Sex is not a bad thing. It's not a dirty thing. It's not a thing that, that God's people shouldn't be allowed or able to talk about. Let's read, a, I won't get into too many details of Song of Songs, but uh, let's, let's read a couple verses. In chapter 2, there's a lot of this dialogue that goes back and forth between the two lovers, between the woman and the man. Uh, she is speaking in verse 1, I am a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. And then he responds, like a lily among thorns is my darling among the young women. And then she responds, like an apple tree among the trees of the forest is my beloved among the young men. I delight to sit in his shade and his fruit is sweet to my taste. Let him lead me to the banquet hall and let his banner over me be love. Strengthen me with raisins. Refresh me with apples for I am faint with love. His arm is under my head and his right arm embraces me. Now, there's so many things going on here, isn't there? On the one hand, I don't, I don't think, I don't think we could read this and not think, oh no, no, it, this is about a husband and a wife and their love for one another, or lovers that are going to become married and consummate their their married love. So yes, it is about that. But you probably notice that even some of that language we sing in some of our hymns, don't we? The lily of the valley, his banner over me is love. Why do? We're not talking about married love when we sing those songs, are we? What are we doing? Well, both Jewish and Christian interpreters for a long time have interpreted Song of Songs because they're like, why is this in the canon? Why is this in our Bible? Why, why are we reading scripture like this in church or in, in synagogue? Why, why are we reading this as a part of this collection of literature about God and his covenant people? Well, that's why. Because the Bible is about God and his covenant people. And that, that picture of marriage, that picture of the way a man is supposed to love his wife and bring joy and happiness and pleasure to her and how a woman is supposed to love her husband and bring joy and happiness and pleasure to him, that, that picture of covenant faithful love to one another, 
that, that's a picture of God, of Yahweh and his covenant people. That, that's a picture of Jesus and his covenant people, the church. That's what Paul says in Ephesians 5, doesn't he? Again, we'll talk more about this in a couple of weeks, but, but we, we, we have to see and understand, I think, when we read the Song of Songs, that it's not one or the other. We tend to be like, well, is this about, is this about sex or is this about God and his people? And I think the answer is yes. Yes, it's, it's both. It's both. It's about married love, and it's also about God and his covenant people because married love within the context of being Yahweh's people, married love is a picture, it is a, a metaphor, it's an expression, it's a picture of God and his people. And so we're living that out within our marriages, and when we read of that love, of God and his covenant people, we have to understand it in that way, in that context, that God loves his people the way a husband is supposed to love his wife. And his faithfulness to his people, his covenant faithfulness is the greatest, is the greatest husband, the greatest bridegroom that has ever been. He doesn't, he doesn't cheat on his wife he doesn't look at another woman. He loves his beloved like no one else ever has. That is how we're supposed to understand God's love for his people. So I think the answer to what is this story about? Is it about, is it about married love or is it about God and his people? Again, I think the answer is yes. But what we can't do, what we can't do is we can't lose sight of the fact that married love is supposed to point to something bigger. So it's supposed to point to something outside of itself. That it can't become an end in itself. In fact, nothing, nothing except God himself should become an end in itself. L let, me, let me read this quote because I think this is really helpful from Jonathan Grant. He said this, Freud birthed a lasting legacy by ascribing medicinal power to sexual expression, making it a potential cure for a host of dysfunctions and pathologies, these developments led to increasing sexual freedom and exploration in the 1920s, whereas marriage, family, and work had been seen as spiritual vocations in which people engaged for the sake of God's kingdom and the good of society, sex and relations relationships soon became central fulfillments in their own right. Let me kind of stop there, just kind of break that down for a second. That there's, there's sort of two ways of looking at relationships, not just the act of having sex, although that's part of this conversation, but even romance and relationships and marriage. There's two ways of looking at those things. Some people, and, and in the ancient world, they might have seen those those relationships as serving the purpose of serving society and that this is good for society or some Christians may have seen that as serving the kingdom of God but again in, in our way of thinking we, we tend to adopt a way of thinking that sees these things as an end in and of themselves so that we're doing these things or engaging in these things or pursuing these things even entering into marriage, why? Because we want to. 
because we think that will make me happy. That will bring fulfillment. Not because it serves any greater purpose, but simply for its own sake. For many, they became things to be pursued for their own sake. Ends in themselves rather than means to greater ends. This shift placed sexual relationships right at the heart of modern identity. They became the sun around which everything else revolved. Tim Keller likes to define an idol as taking a good thing and making it an ultimate thing. Marriage is a good thing. Romance is a good thing. Sex is a good thing. It's not an ultimate thing. So when you take a good thing and you make it an ultimate thing, whether it's money or sex or whatever, if you take a good thing and you make it an ultimate thing, a thing that is an end in itself, then it becomes a false god. It becomes an idol. And we do that so often with romance and marriage and relationships, finding our soulmate. We do that with sex itself. It has become, as Jonathan Grant says, it has become the sun around which everything else revolves. And we think, if I can just find that person, if I can just have that relationship, if I can just find that, that special someone, my soulmate, then I'll be perfectly fulfilled and happy and satisfied, and everything begins to revolve around that. And again, we all struggle with some sort of idolatry. Maybe it's a career, maybe it's a job, maybe it's a relationship, maybe it's sex itself. But again, when we take a good thing and make it an ultimate thing, it becomes an idol, it becomes a false god. When we take a good thing and we make it an end in itself, rather than as a way to pursue a greater end, marriage can be a way to pursue the kingdom of God, a way to serve God, a way to glorify God. But if it's an end in itself, if you say, why are you getting married? Just because it's going to make me happy. Because it's going to fulfill me. Why, why are you dating that person? Why are, you in, why are you having all of these hookups? Why do you keep sleeping around? Why, why do you look at pornography? Why do you, why do you, why do you? I don't know. Because I, I'm hoping I'm going to find something there that will fulfill me. It's not serving any greater purpose. We, we ought to, when we enter into marriage, when, when in marriage we engage in sex, all of these things ought to be to serve a greater good, to serve a greater good, to serve our spouse, to serve the kingdom of God, to bring new life into the world. Are we serving a greater purpose and a greater good, or has this become an end in itself? If it has become an end in itself, then it has become our God. Let me give you a couple of stories in Scripture to show you what this looks like. Genesis chapter 29. Genesis 29. This may be a story that you're familiar with, but, but Jacob, Jacob went to his father, or rather to his uncle Laban's house. And, and when he gets there, Laban says to him, just because you're a relative of mine, should you work for me for nothing? Tell me what your wages should be. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel had a lovely figure and was beautiful. People today would probably say, she's hot, right? She's hot. Rachel is, is hot. And that's exactly what Jacob is thinking. 
Because Jacob was in love with Rachel and said, I'll work for you seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. Now notice, it doesn't say anything about Rachel's feelings or thoughts towards Jacob. It's just that Jacob thinks that Rachel's hot. And, and he offers, he offers seven years wages. Now, scholars have said that's unreasonable. As a bride price, that's unreasonable. He's not thinking straight. And it's like the author, Moses, wants us to understand Jacob wasn't thinking straight. He was delusional. He was obsessed. He looked at Rachel and he couldn't think about anything else. And he wasn't thinking straight. And he says seven years that he offers. And Laban, I think, knows <laughs> I got him because he's not thinking straight. Uh, verse 19, Laban said, it's better that I give her to you than to some other man. So stay here with me. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. And we all say, oh, that's so sweet. That's so sweet. But if you were reading this, if you were reading this when it was, when it was written, you probably wouldn't say, oh, that's so sweet. Because they, they tend to, to not think about marriage and romance the way we tend to think about marriage and romance. And, and so if you're reading this, then in its context, you probably are thinking, what is his problem? Like he offers seven years wages and then seven years go by without him really even thinking about it. And then, and then just to make it really clear what he's thinking, verse 21 that tells us exactly what he's thinking. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife. My time is completed and I want to make love to her. Now, in the ancient world, apparently that was very, very taboo. But even in our world, Dads, can you imagine? You have a daughter, right? And, and, and she's engaged to, to be married. And, and the fiancé says, okay, it's time to get married. I can't wait to make love to her. You'd probably be like, whoa, buddy, come on now. He's not thinking straight. He is obsessed. He's obsessed. He's lovesick. He's obsessed with her. He has invested all of his hopes, all of his dreams, all of his wishes, marrying Rachel and specifically making love to her has become an end in itself. Not as a way to serve the purposes of God, not as a way to fulfill God's promises to, to Jacob, but simply as an end in itself. This is going to bring me fulfillment when I'm with her. So much so that, verse 22, Laban brought together all the people of the, of the place and gave a feast. But when evening came, he took his daughter Leah, the older daughter, and brought her to Jacob, and Jacob made love to her. He obviously wasn't thinking straight. He was so obsessed. He was so obsessed. He didn't even realize that he was having sex with the wrong woman. I, I'm not, I mean, I'm not saying this at all to be flippant. This isn't a flippant story. This is exactly what happens. This is exactly what happens when we make romance or relationship or marriage or a sexual union into an ultimate thing, into an end in itself. When we become obsessed with that, when we become obsessed with finding the right one or having the, the perfect romantic escapade, we're not thinking straight. And then as you follow on this story, then he works another seven years. He marries Rachel. It, 
Are all of his hopes and dreams fulfilled in his relationship with Rachel? No. She's not obsessed with him the way he's obsessed with her. His, the sister, Leah, is obsessed with Jacob. Jacob is obsessed with Rachel, and Rachel's just obsessed with having kids that she can't have. They're all unfulfilled desires. See, this is what happens. This is what happens when your life doesn't revolve around God. When your life revolves around something else, anything else, I don't care what it is. It doesn't have to be sex. It doesn't have to be a romantic relationship. When your life revolves around anything else, when you make anything else an ultimate thing, when you make anything else an end in itself, it will leave you unfulfilled. It will. Nothing, nothing can support the weight of your hopes and dreams like that except God. When you put your faith and your trust in anything else, it will disappoint you. It will not fulfill you the way that you think it will. Another story, even worse one, 2 Samuel chapter 13 and verse 1. 2 Samuel 13. Two of David's children, King David, says in verse 1, In the course of time, Amnon, son of David, fell in love with Tamar, the beautiful sister of Absalom, son of David. So half, sister, half brother and sister. Amnon became so obsessed with his sister Tamar that he made himself ill. She was a virgin, and it seemed impossible for him to do anything to her. So he, he gets advice. Okay, here's what you do. You pretend like you're sick. You lay in bed, invite her to come and feed you food. Verse 10. Then Amnon said to Tamar, Bring the food here into my bedroom so I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the bread she had prepared and brought it to her brother Amnon in his bedroom. But when she took it to him to eat, he grabbed her and said, Come to bed with me, my sister. No, my brother, she said to him, don't force me. Such, such a thing should not be done in Israel. Don't do this wicked thing. What about me? Where could I get rid of my disgrace? And what about you? You would be like one of the wicked fools in Israel. Please speak to the king. He will not keep me from being married to you. But he refused to listen to her. And since he was stronger than she, he raped her. Then Amnon hated her with intense hatred. They're still in bed together. And now that he's had his way with her, he couldn't think about anything else in the whole world. He was obsessed with having sex with his sister. And then he did, and it says, he hated her with intense hatred. In fact, he hated her more than he had loved her. Amnon said to her, get up and get out. No, she said to him, sending me away would be a greater wrong than what you've already done to me but he refused to listen to her. He called his personal servant and said, get this woman out of my sight and bolt the door after her. Whatever it is, whatever it is that obsesses us, whatever it is that becomes an end in itself, whatever it is that becomes an ultimate thing, it will not fulfill you the way God will. This is why we started this series the way that we did. Unless you orient your life around the love of God and you allow the love of God to fill you first and then you enter into marriage or you go get a job or you pursue whatever as a means of serving your God as opposed to an end in itself, 
If you don't allow God's love to fill you and then you go out pursuing whatever, you go out pursuing money, you go out pursuing marriage, you go out pursuing a guy, you go out pursuing a girl, you go out pursuing whatever, thinking that that's going to fulfill you, it will crush you. It will lie to you and it will destroy you. Again, this quote also from Jonathan Grant. At the beginning, an idol promises total satisfaction at no personal cost. It presents the illusion that we're in full control, but unable to fulfill us, the idol draws us further in and requires more from us with each encounter. In the end, having promised us everything at no cost, the idol's false promises ultimately take everything. Having offered us control, the idol becomes our master. There is a very close correlation between addiction and idolatry. We become addicted to our idol, and that may show up in all kinds of ways in our lives. It may show up in pornography use. It may show up in on-again, off-again relationships. It may show up in one-night stands. It may even show up in marriage itself. Again, this isn't about just rules of what to do and what not to do. This is about a healthy view of sexuality begins with orienting your life around the love of God. And if you don't orient your life around the love of God, and you're not fulfilled in Him first, if He's not your ultimate thing, if He's not the only end in and of Himself, and you're pursuing other things as an end in themselves, you will be unfulfilled and ultimately crushed by them. Sex can be good, but it cannot be God. Sex can be good, but it cannot be God. When we make sex our God, not only are we dishonoring God, but we put far too much pressure on sex. It can never be an ultimate good. It can never fulfill the way God can fulfill. See, the thing is, when you have God, you don't have to have sex, right? When you have God, you don't have to have sex. And you can have a contentment even without sex. And we better all find that contentment because there are times in all of our lives all of our lives where we have to practice abstinence for a short time or a long time. And if we don't have contentment in Christ Jesus, then we will ultimately be miserable. The life that Jesus offers to us is a life of contentment and peace. Yes, yes, for, for some at times, there'll be times when some people engage in married sex and that married sex can be good but even married sex cannot be God. It cannot be your God. It cannot satisfy you the way only God can satisfy you. I'm just going to end by reading Philippians 4, and then we'll close. Paul says this. He's not talking about sex. He's just talking about life. He's talking about being in prison. But he says, I'm not speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am, to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. 
I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That's my encouragement to you. Worship God. Serve him. Make him your only ultimate one. Your only end in and of himself. Pursue him. And then when you pursue him, then you can see that sex is a good, but it is not a God. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you. We thank you for you, for giving yourself to us through Jesus, for dwelling in us through your spirit. Father, we thank you also for all of your good gifts, for food to eat, for, for good company, for laughter and joy, and also for sex within marriage. Father, thank you for good things. We thank you for good things. But Father, may we never make those good things into ultimate things. May we never worship the created things, only you who has created all things. Father, we pray that you help us today and every day give you our full love and devotion. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.